Hello and welcome to the Reorg Europe podcast, your weekly roundup of the most interesting trends and developments in performing credit, stressed and distressed, restructuring and post-reorg in the European and CMEA markets. It's Tuesday, August 23rd. I'm Caterina Dassier. And I'm Richard Woolley. Coming up this week, editor Luca Rossi talks about Italian bank Monte di Paschi di Siena and the possibility of a capital increase. Katerina will catch up with America's core credit associate editor Harvard Zhang about the latest on Cineworld after it confirmed that it may file for Chapter 11 last week. A New York-based director of credit research, Mark Fisher, checks in with some insights on the cruise sector, powered by data from Agridium. We would love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please do take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. Quite a few investors are currently looking at Italian lender Monte di Paschi di Siena, the oldest bank in the world. The bank, uh, for those of you with long memories, of course, was rescued by the Italian state in 2017. And uh, Luca Rossi, my fellow editor, has been looking into the latest developments there. I caught up with him earlier to discuss. The bank was bailed out by the Italian state in 2017 after a private uh, recapitalization plan led by JP Morgan collapsed. So what happened at that time was the bailout took the form of a so-called precautionary recapitalization, which is a process consisting of an injection of funds into a solvent bank by a state when the lender is considered to be systemic. So it's very important in, the, in a system, in, a, in an overall economy of a, of a country. In the case of uh, Monte dei Paschi or MPS, uh, the 8 billion precautionary recap consisted uh, in the conversion of 4.3 billion euros of subordinated debt into the equity of the bank. But that was a one-off and that happened in 2017. As part of the 2017 restructuring plan, uh, Monte dei Paschi had to sell a lot of its non-performing loans portfolio. Uh, the bank is also filled with the uh, legal risk. So the situation now is basically that the bank needs new fresh capital, which amounts to about 2.5 billion euros, as calculated by the lender itself. So we know that the Italian state, which owns a 64% stake in the bank, will cover its part of the capital raise. But the question is, what about the other shareholders and private investors? We don't know whether they will fully subscribe to the remaining 900 million euros of the capital raise and in what part. Okay, so there's a capital increase on the horizon, but what do you think is going to happen to the bank's debt? Yes, the company is waiting for the green light from the European Union to authorize the 2.5 billion euros capital increase. But as I said, uh, we need to understand who is going to subscribe to it and whether it will come with the strings attached. So... We have potentially three different scenarios. If the capital raise goes well and the bank is privatized in the future, both its senior and subordinated notes may be left untouched. If the capital raise does not go well or there would be issues in the future privatization of the bank, Monte dei Paschi's subordinated notes, which trade in the low 50s, could be bailed in to cover for the bank's capital shortfalls. 
some investors, probably a minority, also don't fully discount the possibility that also the senior notes of Monte de Paschi could be bailed in along with the subordinated notes. So far, as I said, the subordinated notes are trading around 50s, meaning the market is attributing a 50% possibility of an actual bail-in of those notes. While the senior notes, which pay a much lower coupon, are trading in the mid-80s. So it sounds like a, a lot of people think that nothing's going to happen to the senior notes. Why do you think that is? Well, because restructuring the senior bonds of a bank would destroy the investor's confidence in an asset class that is considered relatively safe. So it would have a lot of ripple effects around the whole market. And also because um, a potential bail-in of the subs would probably be enough to cover for Monte dei Paschi capital shortfalls. So assuming the capital raise is successful, what happens next? Well, the Italian state will need to privatize the bank sooner or later. The question is who is going to buy it? Unicredit was in advance talks to take over Monte dei Paschi, but the deal collapsed because uh, of NPS legal risks and because Unicredit wanted the state to implement a capital increase, which was much larger than the one which is currently under consideration. Let's remember it's 2.5 billion euros. So there is still a lot of uncertainty regarding the future of the world's oldest bank. Next up, we have Arvard Zang, an associate editor in our New York office, to talk about Cineworld, the second largest movie theater chain in the world. So tell us what's the latest. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we reported last week that the company parent to Picture House and Regal uh, is considering filing for Chapter 11 in the U.S. to restructure its more than $5 billion of debt and, of course, to address its liquidity crunch and a $950 million negative court judgment. Um, sources told us that the company is in confidential discussions uh, with its lenders and a debtor in possession financing is expected. Uh, the company issued a press release after the weekend on Monday and confirmed that a possible voluntary Chapter 11 filing in the U.S. is one of the strategic options. Okay, so um, since the onset of COVID in March 2020, what has Cineworld done financially and operationally? Yeah, so as you can imagine, when the pandemic started, it's total lockdown and nobody was going to the movie theater. So when you have a zero revenue situation, you can expect the company to preserve cash, try to raise additional capital, and do everything it can to cut cash outflow. And that's exactly what Cineworld did. The company closed all its locations that year and subsequently reopened uh, the next spring. I think they actually burnt more cash with theaters open than closed, and they negotiated with landlords to cut and defer rent payments. Uh, they got covenant waivers and amendments from lenders um, to give themselves more breathing room, and they issued more debt to get liquidity. But the additional money didn't come without strings attached though. Basically, whatever the company now wants to do financially, they need the consent of this group of secured lenders. And with the lineup of movies um, for later this year not looking great, and admission levels keep missing expectations and falling below uh, pre-pandemic levels, the cash burn just doesn't stop. And the company kind of uh, acknowledged this, um, this kind of um, a potential liquidity crunch as a, a trigger for a uh, comprehensive uh, restructuring. 
Um, so, Harvard, uh, in a potential Chapter 11, what do you think are some of the developments to look out for? Yeah, definitely going to see how Cineworld and Cineplex resolve their merger dispute. Um, Cineworld is now on the hook for nearly a billion dollars after a Canadian court sided with Cineplex uh, following the cancelled merger uh, after COVID started. Uh, one may argue it was buyer's remorse. Um, anyway, and some people argue, you know, the claim that Cineplex um, has or would have in a bankruptcy filing would be um, unsecured claims. So very important issue and definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, a trial in an appellate court was supposed to happen in October, but maybe Senate World will file before then. And of course, with any restructuring, um, inter-creditor tension and how to distribute economics, um, something definitely to follow. Um, some lenders provided super priority loans in the past two years, and then below them there are revolver lenders, term lenders, rest of world lenders, and below those convertible note holders. Uh, so to the extent there are cross holders and you know pure one tranche lenders, we may see different people arguing arguing for different things uh, to protect their interest. So definitely something to keep an eye on. The cruises sector was particularly badly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, but is now showing signs of recovery. Reorg analysts used data pulled from Agridium to compare operators in the sector and to build an overall view on performance. I asked New York-based Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, for an overview. Thanks, Rich. Using Agridium and internal company models, Reorg studied the latest quarterly results for major cruise line operators. This is the first quarter since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic that the largest three cruise ship companies, Royal Caribbean, Carnival Corp, and Norwegian Cruise Lines, were able to generate positive operating cash flow. However, cash flow was largely due to a sharp rise in deposits as only Royal Caribbean was able to generate positive EBITDA. Companies experienced a sharp rise in quarterly revenue, which in the June quarter approached levels seen in 2018. However, while revenue has recovered, the benefit increased utilization has yet to flow into EBITDA. Some costs have grown faster than the impact of increased utilization on revenue. For example, fuel, payroll, and SG&A in the last 12 months period to June 30th were higher than levels recorded prior to COVID-19 for Royal Caribbean and Norwegian. Fuel in particular represents a significant cost for cruise lines. Fuel prices have more than doubled since 2019. For instance, Carnival spent $1.5 billion on fuel in 2019 and therefore could spend approximately $3 billion of current fuel prices per metric ton on an annual basis when operating at full capacity. Other inflationary pressures include food and labor. Royal Caribbean had higher labor costs in the LTM period ended June 30th than all of 2019 and the company spent more on food in the second quarter than any quarter in 2019, even though occupancy and capacity were well below peak levels. On the positive side, deposit growth could be a positive indicator for revenue in 2023. Pricing in the second quarter was held back on weakness in Europe as cruise travel remained local, but based on the cadence of operating reports, pricing might have increased through the spring and summer months. A number of companies anticipate higher pricing in 2023. From a valuation perspective, enterprise value across the three main operators was around the level seen in 2018 albeit with equity cushions significantly thinner, with all three companies boasting LTVs of around 70%. To plug cash flow holes during COVID, operators largely used debt financing and have significantly higher debt balances than pre-pandemic levels. For instance, Royal Caribbean's debt balance grew by over $12 billion since 2020, 
and Carnival Corp's debt balance grew by over $25 billion during that same time period. Over 80% of new financing since the start of 2020 has been in the form of debt. As noted, the report relies in part on data from Agridium. Agridium is Reorg's fundamental data product focused on the leveraged finance universe allowing users instant access to financial reporting of high-yield issuers and leveraged loan borrowers. Users can easily power their models with our Excel add-in or dashboards and reporting via an API and can screen and visualize the data. That's all for me. Back to you, Rich. On September the 13th, Senior Legal Analyst Shan Qureshi is hosting a webinar on the impact of Hoost's restructuring plan with Andrew Dalton of BTG Advisory, Kunal Gadvi of Irwin Mitchell and Marcus Haywood of South Square Chambers. That's Hoost's RP binds dissenting HMRC. Where next for SME restructuring plans? On September the 13th at 10am BST. Registration details are available on the Reorg website. Also on the website, you can find more information on all of the situations and events discussed in this week's podcast. We hope you can join us next week for another Reorg Europe podcast. Until then, have a great week and thank you very much for listening.